Welcome everyone to the Cosmic Matrix podcast with your hosts Bernhard Gunther and Laura Matsu. Today's episode will be about medicine plants, psychedelics and chasing peak experiences. Um, first of all, a little disclaimer before we start. Um, Laura and I will be sharing some of our personal experiences and tie them into bigger picture topics, just such as the path towards awakening and hyperdimensional realities. But uh, we also want to emphasize that we're not telling anybody what they should or shouldn't be doing. And we both have experienced, you know, positive and negative sides of working with these tools. And there are, you know, many, many things to consider. And in the end, it all depends on the individual. Um, so, you know, some of what we're going to talk about is also based on some of, uh, a couple of articles actually have written exactly on this topic. The first one was in 2013 called Reflections on Ayahuasca, Psychedelics, Mariana, and the Critical Look at the Psychedelic Movement, and an article I wrote last year called Altered States of Entrapment, the Plant Medicine Manipulation. Yeah, and I would also like to say my own disclaimer that I am also neither for or against uh, using psychedelics. I also acknowledge that in some of the stories, I took them very dangerously, meaning I just bought them off random people and I and I didn't know if they were pure or not. So I think just to bring that to attention that no matter what my experience was is that I, I I acknowledge that I did them in a quite dangerous setting. So I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't recommend that anyone who feels inspired by my own story, if that happens, to do as I did in that sense. Because I, I even looking back, I would never have done it now from the level of being I'm at. But yeah, so let's just get right into it. So I think the first kind of idea to get into is... Obviously, today, um, there's been a lot of attention on psychedelics, using them as an alternative form of medicine. Um, I know there's a psychiatrist in Canada, for instance, that can now legally prescribe ketamine and uh, psilocybin magic mushrooms to people who are more severe cases. And you just see in general, like it's all over the place, like even back, you know, in 2011, 2012, when I was really trying to actually it was a bit before that when I was focusing on it, I know that you focused on some of these psychedelics even way before I did. It still was kind of seen as like a little bit edgy and kind of weird and you'd be judged for it. But now it seems to be a lot more mainstream and socially acceptable. And I think that's for a reason is because there's a lot of healing potential in psychedelics. But then you're also getting into the danger of people who chase these peak experiences in general, who always want to feel like this supreme spiritual state and... I guess the danger in that is that it doesn't actually help the soul evolve spiritually in a more organic and grounded way. So maybe we can just get into some of our experiences to start out with. Uh, yeah, let's just start where you began. Like, what was your first kind of like major psychedelic, maybe not even counting marijuana, just to begin with, because <laughs> everyone kind of smoked a joint when they were a teenager, but just your major kind of psychedelic experience and like, how did that affect you? Yeah, um, well, on that note, actually, I didn't do any drugs or any marijuana. I smoked my first joint at the age of 20. <laughs> <laughs> 
but by the age of 26, I've done everything under the moon, so to speak. Um, but, you know, yeah, in terms of personal experiences, referring to what you said at the beginning, I think most people back then, most of us, most kids get into these substances, let's call them psychedelics. And when we talk about psychedelics, medicine plants, generally speaking, we talk about, as you mentioned, psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, or uh, acid, LSD, DMT. And we're also going to include ketamine, even though I don't, cons that's obviously synthetically created for the most part. So we're also going to include that, even though I don't necessarily categorize that as a psychedelic, even though it has psychoactive properties. It does, yeah, John Lilly's work and all of that. Yeah, that would be good to get into that as well. Um, but yeah, my first experiences were in probably in the first time I came across psilocybin mushrooms. And that was actually a, quite an initiation for me. That was in 1995 or 1996. I can't remember one of those two years. And, you know, through friends, you know, back in the days I was living in Hollywood being a musician and we had this uh, circle of friends, Europeans, and we kind of organized these desert parties, illegal desert parties back in the days. It was even way before Burning Man and just 50 of us getting together once a month um, out in the desert at a full moon. <laughs> and, um, you know, we would get the directions the night before and uh, we would just um, rave out in the desert. You know, there was my introduction to electronic music and it was beautiful to camp out in the desert. And, you know, the drug of choice was there mostly back then, uh, ecstasy, MDMA, acid and mushrooms. And that's when I had also my first mushroom experience out in the desert, and that was really, really profound, um, especially expensive music, especially expensive out in the in the desert in nature. And it really had, a, my, I think my first breakthrough, I ate a whole eighth, you know, like about 3.5 grams. And um, after going through the initial, initial sickness in your tummy and whatnot, I had really this profound experience of really like, you know, um, the speak experience you were hinting at of like experiencing something larger than myself, some connected to something bigger, connected to everything that is and this joy and this bliss. And I was dancing like crazy, locked into the music and I am a drummer, so I was playing drums and all of that. So it really connected me to something beyond my little ego shell, right? And, you know, at the same time, I had also this, you know, what, what came up for me in these experiences as well of a lot of childhood experiences, even my wound, childhood wounding from my parents and all of that. So I was able to see it from a higher picture perspective, even a lot of compassion for my parents. So it helped me in a certain healing way. And it was also somewhat in my introduction actually to body work, massage and yoga, because I actually met my mentor, mentor out there in the desert. We were both tripping on mushrooms and the next day. He was giving me my first uh, full body massage out in the desert. He has its massage table there, and I was still tripping on mushroom. I had this profound experience of really experiencing my body. I, I knew it is the body is just energy, just energy condensed to low vibration, right? And I also realized visit, um, on an experiential level that memories and trauma is stored in my tissue and body. When 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 he was working on me and working on these, the tension in my body, targeting certain muscles, I got had flashbacks to childhood, right? And certain emotions came up and feelings. So I really understood also the body-mind connection, all of that, and it was extremely profound and very healing, right? And there's also my introduction somewhat to yoga, to um, 
work you know with these poses i almost did the actually these poses involuntarily before even understood asana practices of yoga i did them i did many of these uh the, the classical poses under the influence of mushrooms because it just felt right because then energy was moving in my body in a certain way so you know but then also early on you know i used it like many kids back then or even nowadays you come across these uh, these substances through partying at parties and raves and all of that but I also noticed early on that there's more to it. So I then also started experimenting by myself and I got into Terence McKenna and did the heroic dose of five grams or even up to seven, eight grams by myself, locked myself in the room, in the rehearsal room of my band back then with music and pushed myself really far out there. And, you know, these are very, you know, it was, it was very experiential and I was also kind of like, you know, tried to get as close to death as possible, so to speak. Um, but, you know, as healing and insightful, they were on so many levels. But, I, you know, at some point I also realized too much stuff came up too fast and I was not able to integrate these experiences. And I feel that's a problem a lot in this day and age, the integration process when you have such a profound experience. Yeah, um, it's interesting because you came at it a very different angle, but kind of much of the same, maybe unconscious as tension. I think you really wanted to feel better and maybe didn't even realize how bad you were feeling. Um, I I don't even remember. The, well, I, I remember I don't even remember the first time I did mushrooms because I grew up in a town that was kind of like drink and smoke weed and do mushrooms. So I definitely exper experimented with it way before 20. By 20, I had already re been recovering from my first couple drug addictions. So... <laughs> Um, but that was actually the, that was actually what introduced me to, um, ket ketamine was the first thing I had a very profound experience and connection with because I had been experiencing very severe depression for, since I was maybe like 14, I would say 15 for sure. And I had developed a cocaine addiction when I was in my late teens. And um, that basically destroyed my serotonin. But I just really wanted to feel better and feel happier. And they kept prescribing me, meaning they, meaning psychiatrists, kept prescribing me antidepressants. And, it, you know, I just never liked them and how they made me feel. And then one day when I was in a dirty rave, like a warehouse, um, I was in the bathroom with somebody and I thought they were giving me cocaine and they actually gave me ketamine. And I was like, all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, the second that I snorted it, I was like, this is exactly what I've been trying to feel. And it just gave me an immediate sense of relief from like all my depressions and all my problems. And looking back, the reason that it did that is because it actually took me out of body. And that's why I liked it. Like all the trauma was in my body. And then I was able to touch something beyond myself um, and feel better. And so because I was also caught in very addictive patterns back then I immediately got addicted to ketamine and was like then I also similarly got into Terrence McKenna I would like do ketamine at the library and read like Terrence McKenna books and all these like weird kind of psychedelic psychonaut authors and um yeah I mean eventually it just didn't really work for me anymore and it was actually kind of a little bit hard to get back then to be honest like you could easily get like all the other drugs but it was a little bit more um, I guess the word, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It's just, it was just basically hard to find somebody who had ketamine. 
So from that point on, I actually just went through a bit of a downward spiral and ended up getting addicted to far worser drugs, mainly um, like things like Xanax and opiates, prescription opiates. And that obviously wasn't going to work out well for very long. And then I remembered, I remembered this ketamine experience. And then I started doing some research on it. And I found out something interesting, which that um, the reason that ketamine provides this immediate relief for depression is it shuts off this thing called the NDMA receptor. And that's responsible for linking current memories that you're experiencing in the present to previous experiences. And a lot of the patterns of depression are kind of getting stuck, stuck in this negative mindset and being like the thing that you're experiencing in the present, you start attaching it to past previous bad experiences. And so that's why it's so immediately effective. So, and it's also been used as a treatment for opiate addiction. So once again, I self-medicated myself and I actually pulled myself out of a very pretty epic addiction to opiates by using it as a transitionary thing. And just a disclaimer again, I also had to do a lot of work on myself after. It kind of gave me a bit of a breather, I guess you could say. And then I had to really dive deep into my work. It didn't resolve any of my trauma. It just kind of pushed me, it gave me a little bit of a head start. So that was my first kind of positive experience. And then, and but also at the same time, like I can see how it almost gave me like uh, a cheat code that didn't exist. Like I still had to deal with all my thought patterns. I still had to deal with all the trauma in my body. It just kind of gave me a little bit of a relief from the sadness and the depression that I had been experiencing for so long. So do, do you feel with ketamine, you used it more as a tool and not to avoid or buffer, buffer things, uh, but it helped you to manage? Yeah. For definitely. I mean, I think in the first instance, when I was first introduced to it, I was also looking for just relief from my depression. And then, but then I was also, you know, partying, I didn't really care about doing excess amounts. And then the second time that I used it more consciously, because I did some research on it, I was like, okay, I'm going to use this, I'm not going to go to, I definitely wasn't doing any, uh, doing it in any party setting. And I was doing it, and I was like, okay, I'm going to use this to get for a couple of weeks to get myself over this hump. Because I'm, if anyone's listening and has experience with this, opiate addiction is extremely hard on the body, and and the, and the brain too. It definitely depletes a lot of uh, the neurotransmitters in the brain, depletes the dopamine. So it kind of gave me. It, I was basically the, my intention was to use in the same way that people use antidepressants, except after to use it for a much shorter period. Whereas antidepressants, it takes about six to eight weeks. To, to kick in at least and that's if you're using the quote-unquote right antidepressant but here I was like two weeks of using it and then I was able to kind of have a fresh mind to, in order to do the deeper work that I needed to do to heal those traumas yeah it's interesting I mean ketamine it's like in a class in its own and it's somewhat a psychedelic but more of a dissociative as well it's used in anesthetics especially in veterinarian clinics veterinarian veter veter veterinarian veterinarian clinic excuse me <laughs> um i actually used to work in an animal hospital and uh, was actually um, a, a tech in in surgery and, you were the friend that i always was like, hoping to have exactly when I was people always hitting up can you get me some ketamine can you get me some ketamine but it's interesting. I was also had my own ketamine experiences differently than yours because I was back then really, you know, I called myself, would call myself a psychonaut and really experimenting and 
diving deep and I got into John Lilly's work. Yeah, yes. I did too, actually. I like, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I definitely pushed the limits. Like, I mean, I was also taking it intramuscular, uh, intramuscularly as well. And because I just like had the strongest effect. Exactly. That's what I, I did at once. I ejected myself. And that's when it got scary too. I got, I got myself into the so-called K-hole. Oh yeah. I the, loved that place. That's interesting though that you say that was terrifying because the reason that I got so attached to it is because I've had, I've only had these experiences on ketamine and also, when I had a very high fever when I was a kid, where I would literally K-hole or had a high fever when I was a kid, and I would touch God. like I, It was a total, all-encompassing experience of God. And that's what made me believe that God exists, because I was like, oh my God, I, I felt it. Yeah. So I never, like, it's, I, like, I don't know, maybe we had different types of ketamine, but I never had those like sc scary K-hole experience. Or maybe I just didn't like being in my body in general, so I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, it's interesting, because I was, I was literally doing research. I still have the folder. I did some research and printed out from the internet of how to induce near-death experiences via ketamine did so, you you wrote that yourself no i just uh, did research on the internet and oh, printed okay. it yeah, out yeah, yeah, and yeah. like did i did it all by myself too it was a bit crazy i mean back, similar to you i did a lot of things back then in my naivete which i wouldn't do yeah nowadays and i'm kind of glad i came out fine or mm. out the other way right <laughs> but um yeah, yeah. i was actually also because by then I I had been to a psychiatric clinic where they used to practice MK Ultra experiments. Not that they practiced on me, but I was just aware of it, even though I hadn't really gotten into the that kind of information. And I remember using it to intentionally brainwash myself too. I would put on like positive thinking mantras and K hole myself. I was doing all sorts of crazy things because I was literally just like aggressively trying to brainwash myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So. Yeah, going back to some of, you know, for me, and I can definitely say that psilocybin mushroom has been an ally in my early days. Like I mentioned before, it helped me to come reveal a lot of childhood wounding issues for my parents and just, you know, connect to something deeper within myself to experience more life on a more uh, energetic level, understanding, you know, the body-mind connection and, you know, and, um, you know, because I was suffering from very low self-esteem and all of that. So it, it had it definitely had its healing potential, but as I was pushing myself with high doses of mushrooms, what I also started to experience was very strange worlds with you know entities mm. or elves, as Terence McKenna said, and, the, and I always felt there's another intelligence, and it was not a projection of my unconscious or anything like that, but uh, being confronted with entities with beings, right? Some even reptilian nature, and which I didn't have no context back then but it was really fascinating because i always assumed some people had you know talked about they have this spiritual experience which i had on some level too but for the most part it was a very alien experience for me and that was also in the sense my the introduction for me to you know to the topic of ufos aliens the hyperdimensional matrix and hyperdimensional realities and all of that yeah i feel like i mean each plant obviously for most people who are somewhat interested in shamanism has a spirit in itself but ketamine is not a plant i think it's a i think it's an alien energy myself and then mushrooms is definitely more of an elf energy for sure like it's a direct association in all the kind of elf elf uh, art art you see these days but for me actually i i don't know it's interesting like i've only had heart opening experiences on mushrooms i've never had like a bad mushroom trip 
the only time it was too overwhelming was it was almost too much of a heart opening and I was scared to open my heart that much. Yeah, it was beautiful. I think though, I remember that one incident where really the mushroom kicked my ass and that's when I stopped doing psychedelics for many years. There was an experience out again in the desert and I was so comfortable doing mushrooms and with my two of my friends and we were pushing each other, ego came into play, you know, how much we could take. Mm. I remember sitting in the, in, in the van where the music was blasting and we... Um, the three of us, we each took about seven to eight grams, like a quarter of mushrooms each, right? And you remember all of a sudden, like something, you know, it's always, you never know, some mushrooms also are, have a different potency and different oh, qualities, sure, yeah. right? And that mushrooms were like more toxic. Mm. And all three of us just in a nutshell had a really a death experience. I literally thought I'm going to die. Like mm. it was horrible. Like my other friend, he was running around. I need help. I'm dying. And, mm. and you know, I was just all out of it. And me just, you know, in my own fetal position. And, and I had this fear, okay, I'm going to die. And the guilt trip came up. And, you know, thinking about my parents, they're going to find out I died of a drug overdose and all of that. But then through this death you know, I actually remember then this woman, this girl came by and she gave me this banana and like I just ate it. And then the moment I ate it, kind of like everything changed and I broke through it and had this rebirth, so to speak, this heart opening on a really high level. And I was literally seeing energy. It was plugged into this energetic matrix and was dancing my ass. I was amazing. But I also realized, okay, this, I have to treat these plants, these medicines with more respect. I cannot just use it for partying anymore. That was a huge wake up call for me. Yeah. And when you talk about the thing, the funny thing is, is I think my almost like suicidal death wish, death wish at the time was actually working to my benefit and being able to touch God. Cause I actually wasn't afraid to die when I was doing ketamine. Cause my life was already, it was so bad that I just, I think I almost was trying to, like, I still was fueled by that death wish, which is why I pushed myself and I was willing to like, you know, inject myself with stuff that I got from some random guy with dreadlocks down the street who I didn't, I didn't know or trust. But, and, and I think it's mostly that fear that you get of death. That is the barrier between you being able to reach these like higher states. But let's like maybe even just talk about like, I think even looking back, my main issue was that I wanted to feel good all the time. And I wasn't willing to actually feel as bad as I needed to feel in order to really do some deep processing. And that I really had to take a sober look at my life and all the th ways that I had set it up and all the ways of being that I had been in the world and really feel that and experience that instead of constantly trying to feel better or feel happy. I think that that's the thing in itself. Like it's like, what is it like 50% or something? Some really high number of the US is on antidepressants right now. And people put their dogs on antidepressants. And I think it's also symptomatic of like how in the West, like you're expected to be happy all the time and just like smile and push through it and not really truly express how you're feeling. And I think even with psychedelics, it's like we're trying to force this like inauthentic state when maybe like this, you know, the state of the world is causing these feelings in us for a reason. And, and we're living in a world that is uncomfortable and we need to really feel that so we can create positive changes in our own lives and in the world. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. At some point, I was also chasing that experience, right, of just wanting to feel this aliveness and, you know, and, uh, you know, also visually, I just was addicted to the visions I got and just these, you know, out-of-body experiences and just this bliss and love and all of that. You know, and then I also I also got into in, in the late nineties into heavily into DMT, which is really an, probably the strongest psychedelic out there. You can 
in smokable form. And that kind of like is you enter in a whole different world with all kinds of being entities, but it was also extremely heart opening. I also did five MEO DMT, which is a really profound uh, experience. It's a bit different than, than uh, regular DMT, so to speak. But I was also, I was doing it a lot. I, I think I smoked 30, had 30 DMT trips within a couple of years. But again, like I mentioned before, similar to you mentioned, too much was coming up too fast. I wasn't able to integrate and wanted to have more disturbing experiences. Disturbing experience in the sense of like dealing also with this hyperdimensional matrix, which I just got into back then, these entities and interferences. I'm sure I took something on back then in terms of entity attachment, a topic we'll get into a bit later in this podcast as well. But I realized, okay, I, I need to lay, you know, um, focus on, on all these issues more in a sober, grounded, constructive way. So it actually inspired me to learn more about basic psychology. I got into Jungian psychology, shadow work, basic spirituality. I learned, you know, also just practicing yoga, meditation, and really integrate these experiences and work on it on a on a sober level um, without trying to use these substances to basically bypass. You know, sometimes I feel looking back, I have to also acknowledge myself, some of the experiences I was projecting uh, too much positivity so to speak into these experiences than they actually were you yeah. know what i mean overestimating myself feeling oh i feel this now and all that but it was still not healed it's just like it showed me what is um what is possible so to speak but the work to be done even trans mckenna said it's not what you do on these substances or plants but what you do when you're off of them mm-hmm. truly integrate them and then do the work in a sober state yeah, I found the most effective uh, weeks for me were times for me where after doing ketamine, I got this like kind of two week break of relief where I wasn't in my own depressive patterns. And that's when I could really take on new ideas and learn and learn new ways of being in the world. But when I was on it, it actually definitely wasn't fun. Like I was throwing up and like I was dizzy. I didn't have any equilibrium in my body. Like I was not functional at all. Um, and so maybe, and, and it's interesting too, because looking back, like even, uh, that attitude of always wanting to feel this amazing spiritual experience that actually carried over into my own meditation practice. Cause I got, I mean, I kind of had a little bit more of a background in psychology to some extent, cause my mom works in psychiatry. So I was very much around this kind of way of thinking, my whole life, but I really didn't get into the spiritual components of, of life until I really hit my Saturn return, which happened around age 28. And I realized too, because of my experiences with psychedelics, I feel like they kind of gave me a shortcut. And that's also and an escape. That's also what I was trying to apply to my own meditation practice. So I would meditate and I was really trying to get these, like, I thought the feelings of bliss and love were like, where you, what was, that was the point of the spiritual journey. And I think it's like that, that idea of just chasing peak experiences in general really needed to get taken out of my mind as part of the spiritual journey and, and integrated into something more whole. Yeah. And also back then, Especially when I started out in the 90s and early 2000, you know, it was, like you mentioned before, it was not very popular at all. Nobody, hardly anybody I knew know anything about DMT or ayahuasca, Mm -hmm. you know, which has become very popular in this day and age, right? It's very uh, hyped as well. And, you know, everybody's looking for ayahuasca retreats down in Peru or, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the positive side of these plants and being used for healing. And I think that's very encouraging to see. Absolutely. 
right? But there's also a blind spot in all of that because I feel I've experienced for myself and worked with many others in my research that there are dangers to varying degrees, right? And these dangers are not necessarily physical, but maybe from an energetic level, mm -hmm. but even from a psychological level, people who are, you know, like you mentioned in the beginning, set and setting, where are you doing this? What are you doing? What's surrounding? Who is, who is around you? And all of these, who is influencing you during this journey? And, and, you know, then sometimes it can make things worse, especially people who are dealing with severe trauma that's all of a sudden coming out and they have no place to integrate it, nobody to guide them and all of that. Yeah, that actually reminds me of two stories when I first, I mean, I got into ayahuasca in maybe the peak hype moment, which was a couple years ago. And I had decided, I actually had a very positive experience. I did my first ayahuasca ceremony in LA with a shaman that I just randomly met on a movie set. I really liked her energy. I trusted it. And that was amazing. I went through all these, uh, I basically, similar to how you describe your mushroom experience, like all these traumas came up. I was able to finally cry about things that were previously completely inaccessible to me. Like I was emotionally shut down into feeling that and it brought it all up. The entire ceremony I cried. I must have been kind of annoyed to the people around me looking back but um but anyway so i so i went down to peru and right before i went down i was talking to this guy and he was like oh my god like please don't do it my best friend went down there and when he came back to the regular world he basically couldn't handle it and he killed himself he shot himself like a couple months later so that was like my kind of warning and that was a true story that was his best friend and he was really trying to caution me against it And then another experience I found out after I'd gone to Peru is the guy who was friends of a friend of a mine. He basically lived on the same kind of area of Canada that I lived and he knew people I knew. And he had a history of like drug addiction and, and aggression from what I've read. I didn't know him personally. So just a disclaimer, I'm obviously not going to say his name, but it might, the details might give it away. But anyway, um, he went down, he was working with a very famous shaman uh, grandmother down there, and apparently he had a psychotic break. He had a history of like like drug addiction before, and maybe you can talk about how that can affect people. And he ended up killing her, murdering her, and then they lynched him in front, the, the village lynched him. Oh, that him. just happened recently, Yeah, right? that just What happened. What was the name? Yeah. I forgot, yeah. I, I won't name his name, but the details are going to give it yeah, no, away. No, but uh, what the shamans did. The, the oh, Olivia, was, Olivia, she yeah. She was very popular. Yeah, yeah, she was, she's like pretty, she's very much like almost the face of ayahuasca in Peru. Like she's worked with uh, Temple of the Way of Light, and um, that's Gaber Mate's, that's Gaber Mate's, Uh, ayahuasca healing center down there. But anyway, what, looking back, you can almost see how he was trying to, he was trying to kind of escape all these traumas of his past and almost take a bypass. That's just my own perspective on it. And then something came back to haunt him and something came up in these ceremonies. And so I think that's also the danger of, I think a lot of people too are trying to look for a shortcut out of like, especially when they've had very traumatic past and drug addictions. And then in trying to find that shortcut, it's almost this weird paradox because it always gets better before it gets worse. But if it gets way worse and you're not able to handle that point when it gets way worse, something like that could happen. Yeah. And also, you know, yeah, let's talk a bit about ayahuasca in particular, because that's very, very popular in this day and age again. Um, Yeah, my first ayahuasca experience, my first time in Peru was in 2006. I went there with the yoga teacher I was working with, and she had a yoga retreat with ayahuasca uh, ceremonies in the Sacred Valley. 
and had a couple of ceremonies there with a pretty well-known shaman down there. And that went well, but also like the setup was just, you know, the group of us, maybe 15 people. And it was interesting, my first experience also within a group, which I not have been used, you know, I did a lot of the my own experience of mushrooms, DMT was mostly by myself or one or two friends. So processing with a whole group of people was a whole new experience. And a lot of these people have never done any psychedelics or not even smoked cannabis before. So a lot of them actually, it was intense. Some of them freaked out. They ran out of the teepee. And it was, and I thought it's just, that's just, that's what happens. And this quote unquote shaman, I won't m mention his name. He's very popular down there right now. Yes, um, I think I've worked with him also. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, he was just sitting there with his guitar playing, but not giving <laughs> any individual attention. And yeah. I noticed like my good Peruvian friend, Fred, which who my hosted retreat in the past, like, yeah, he's known. He's just, you know, it's like being on the ship, but nobody's steering the ship. Mm, right. That's his style that's too. His he's sti like, well, his, his, his reasoning is it'll make you stronger if you can get through this on your own. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. But, you know, then I, I met this medicine woman there, which I became really close to, and she saw also the danger, and she's very psychic clairvoyant, and she saw even, you know, somebody was processing, and then this entity, demon, whatever, ejected out of his aura, aura and jumped into the person next to him, mm -hmm. right? And the quote-unquote shaman was not aware of it at all. And that's, I realized, the danger of nowadays, because when you join these uh, sometimes these retreats especially when they are just based on medicine plan where you do like ayahuasca every two days or wachuma and, and just that you know you come together and like five times in 10 days it's, do. that's insane and crazy and especially with people that come from all over the world you don't know them and sometimes yeah maybe a smaller circle 10 people but it can be up to 15 20 30 then nowadays they even ceremonies are 80 and 100 people oh, yeah i've heard of people that's that, yeah. crazy energetically yeah, which is interesting because before I went down to Peru, I, 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 I kind of had, I had had a few friends who kind of helped guide me who were more aware of these energies. I didn't understand like the, the language for it, but I also knew that it was very important to work with psychic protection and prayer and intention before. Cause I went into those ceremonies, that same shaman, and it was like, like on a full moon, 50 people there. And that was crazy. Like that was really the energy in there was unmanageable essentially because no one was managing it. But, um, but I remember like, cause, and this is before I really understood. I just really understood that there was a spiritual field around people that energies could attach to and it could have, again, you could transfer it to other people. And I also knew that when you take psychedelics, you're in a very vulnerable state. So, and I don't know how much this really helped in the end, but I did go in with prayer and attention. I, I had this whole ritual of putting all these crystals around my bed and I really wanted to create a field around me so that whenever I went into these ceremonies, I would be protected. And people just went in like, you know, people would come in from drinking the night before and all sorts of things. So I could see that people had no sense of what they were getting themselves into. They were just like, oh, I'm going to go down to Peru and go to Machu Picchu and also do an ayahuasca ceremony, not really realizing like the full extent of like, it's an extremely powerful medicine. It's, and I think that for the most part, unless someone has already grounded themselves in some spiritual practice, meaning like meditation, yoga, qigong, whatever it is, and really done a certain amount of work on themselves, they shouldn't be diving right into it. That's only my personal opinion, because I don't think, especially in ceremonies like that, like there's, they literally just let you sleep in the in the in the in the space and then you go home after and then you're just left on your own yeah 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 that's very interesting so 
that ties also into what we see now increasingly in Peru. I've been there many times, 10 times, and not just for ayahuasca, but hosting retreats myself then, not just with medicine plants, but the romanticizing of, of Peru, the romanticizing of shamanism or the, you know, the guru, but also India happens with guru projections and what, you know, gringos and white people project into the shaman, put them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And that was for me a wake up call the last time I did uh, ayahuasca down there. And I stopped since then in 2013. Uh, two of my friends, one of them, uh, my Peruvian friend, who is actually a, a Wachuma Curandero working with, with uh, San Pedro Cactus, we went deep into the lower jungle, eight hours on a banana bow, boat uh, to a Shibibo um, tribe and working with the shaman. But it was a very different ceremony because it was just um, myself, my two friends, and then two shamans, very intimate setting. And I feel that's also more the traditional way. Right, yeah. you just work almost one on one, or even the shaman only drinks, yeah. and not just with these groups of strangers. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed two things was interesting. That's when I was first confronted with hyperdimensional interference in an, uh, a very obvious one because something happened during the ceremony. So I was processing, and the shaman really gave me personal attention, helped me process, purge, and all of that. And then he worked with my other two friends, and then he started like heavily processing and purging, and it was under a lot of distress. And his uh, colleague, the other shaman, supported him in that. And I just thought, okay, this is his process. Maybe he's clearing himself from what he worked with us and all of that. But then um, his friend uh, asked us to leave, and then we went to our own, you know, tents and just processing our own experience. Uh, which, by the way, was more purging. Was not too much vision. You know, mm. on that note, I also noticed that shaman we talked about in you know, other shamans, they actually, um, you know, the traditional use is actually more ayahuasca, you know, in the sense of just la purga, the purge. And it's not about the visions, you yeah. know, but now they know that the Westerners, as they say, like the fireworks. So they mix even other stuff in Datura to increase the visuals because that's what the Westerners like. Yeah. Right. I got, yeah. But uh, let me just finish the, uh, that experience. So, you know, the next day, we talked to uh, to the Kurandera, the shaman guided us, and he then told us that he was under attack from a neighboring shaman, mm. right? Hyperdimensional in psychic attack because he was jealous and envious that he was working with us. That's how they fight, by the way. It's that's, pretty funny. It's a sorcery, but <laughs> yeah. it's very it's very serious because yeah. that's when I realized that there's dark shamanism and these plants being used to put curses on other people, yeah. and especially on gringos. And there's something that, you know, that my, many people are simply not aware of. And also what I've noticed... A lot of, you know, not all, but there's a lot of quote-unquote shamans out of integrity because they become greedy. They understand, oh, the West does like this. You know, there's money to be made, the almighty a lot dollar. Of money, yeah. Right? So we've noticed that a lot, especially there. So it was unavoidable to to see this and, and confront that, right? So, um, so there are these dangers which a lot of people are not aware of. So it's really, you know, like... Somebody said, whenever you do ayahuasca and these medicine plants at the shaman, it's like you're doing surgery. You have to know your surgeon. It's like psychic surgery. Who is this person? Is he or she in an integrity? Like you mentioned before, a lot of these shamans are actually, uh, you know, especially down there, and alcohol is a problem. A lot of shamans drink alcohol. And there have been many incidents of abuse, even sexual abuse, rape and suicides. All of that is under the influence of ayahuasca being swept under the rug or just ignored by the quote-unquote medicine community because it's bad for business, so to speak. And again, it's not about throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but there needs to be an awareness around how the popularity has created a lot of abuse and distortion 
of uh, of the of the medicine world. Yeah, which is interesting because just looking back, my most effective ayahuasca ceremony was with a woman from Detroit, <laughs> and she and like and not a, you know the shamans in Peru who I were meeting. I could just sense that greed and I could see that they saw me as just another Westerner to make money from. And it's really about the energy of the person and the integrity of the person. And she, you know, like she obviously, uh, not obviously, but she went through her own initiation. I'm not saying she was just some random person who just did ayahuasca and was like, I'm going to start having ayahuasca ceremonies, which is a lot of the Western ayahuasca. Uh, uh, they call themselves shamans, but I don't think they are. So there's a lot of that, but just the fact that she was able to hold the space, she was in integrity, and she had the right values behind it, and she wasn't fueled by greed, I think was the most important thing, because the person who's facilitating the ceremony, that's a person who's really, you know, controlling the energy in the room in many ways. Like, that's why they sing the Icaros, and they they have the music and stuff, is because they're trying to create the energy in the room and protect the energy in the room from those things happening. And then down in Peru, it's it's crazy, the ayahuasca tourism. I mean, I'm sure you went, I guess, a couple years last before I went, but it's just you see the greed in their eyes and you just can tell like anytime. I mean, it's the same in India, but maybe to, in a different way. But if you're a Westerner, they just see you as dollar signs. So I think that once you start mixing any sort of spiritual work with greed, it automatically just ruins the integrity of it. Yeah. And that ties really into the much bigger topic of the matrix control system, because what I've realized Myself in the past, like I mentioned, I've definitely taken on some entity attachments from working with mushrooms and, you know, and interferences in particular. And that has increased in this day and age. And then, you know, my article I wrote um, last year called uh, Altered States of Entrapment, I share a case of this kid from Canada who, you know, in his early 20s looked up an ayahuasca retreat on the internet and joined it and was one of these well known shaman down in Iquitos. And the typical, like, you know, was it five ceremonies in, in 10 days or something? And they were mixing two, like, which is unheard of in traditional shamanism, like, you know, three days of ayahuasca, then you do wachuma and then DMT on top of it was like my friend talked like a psychedelic candy store, so to speak. Yeah. Right? And it's very irresponsible, but, you know, just because people get hooked on these peak experience and something very disturbing happened there where he actually got cursed by the shaman. You know, putting a curse and the way it works is similar like uh, Western, let's take an analogy, Western medicine, doctor's mal malpractice, where he keeps, you know, the um, the uh, the client or the patient sick, so he comes back for more. That's and, actually common. That's not even like, considered like, malpractice at this just point. A common, just put them on drugs. <laughs> but the similar, he actually attached an entity into him to at first like um, – you know, give him the illusion that something has been healed and better, but like kept him for coming back for more. So it got him even more sick, but something went even terribly wrong and, and he was dealing with the intense demonic possession, literally. And, you know, he came back to Canada and literally lost his mind. He lost, he lost his work, his own business. He almost, he tried to commit suicide driven by this, by this entity. I, you know, I have all this, this, this whole case is described in my article. You, you guys can read it up. And, and he actually had to escape to Mexico because he was, uh, uh, getting, um, institutionalized under heavy medication. And, but his girlfriend helped him to get off of it. And then they fled literally to Mexico to find 
help. And then he came across my work. My older article uh, uh, talked about reflection ayahuasca, where I already shared about dark shamanism. And we had a Skype session. And during the Skype session already, the entity always was taking him over, like really, literally um, choking him. Like he made these weird mudras with his hands and had a hard time sharing to step in his power. And he was injecting with, he was injected with his thoughts by these entities that he's powerless, that he's just a puppet and all of that. So that was a few years back, few years back, and I worked with him, with him for a month, and he has gone through an amazing healing journey and, and got himself out of it. But it was just, it's, it's a good example of like, you know, uh, how uh, dangerous it sometimes can be. And I want to make clear, this is not about fear mongering, right? It's not implying that this happens with any ceremony you can get into, but it's just about awareness, right? And not have these romantic projections. I was understanding um, you know, not to chase these experiences, especially in my case, and, and on you, I was never really like looking for them. It just came across my path. And nowadays people, you know, through group pressure, peer pressure, and now they're so hype. It's like, oh, I have to try ayahuasca. Yeah, it's so popular. Google, I need to, you know, they just force, forcefully yeah. look for it. Yeah. Right. And that's how you get yourselves into these traps. And I was understanding from a bigger pick from this path of healing and, and awakening, it's not necessary to work with these plants. It's just another path. Right, it can help to a certain degree, but also understanding these are tools, and at a certain point, these tools need to be laid aside. Yeah, and I remember I forget uh, the first person like I could see myself being led towards it because right after I had my first like I guess awakening experience as an intense healing journey, doing yoga and meditation every day, and I ended up working with a guy who did ayahuasca, and he actually had a very nice energy. He was one of the first people who I felt demonstrated true like loving kindness and compassion to me after all these years of trauma. And he and he just came back from doing ayahuasca, and then I was like, oh, that's interesting, and it kind of like. Inter it kind of like uh, intrigued me, I guess you could say. And then I just ended up happening working on this movie set with the shaman who who did ayahuasca ceremony. So it was very it was very much a synchronicity. And then when I went to go seeking more of it in Peru, uh, I feel like that's when it also it kind of went wrong in a sense, like because I feel like it's almost like you know with that seeking energy when you're trying to look for something, you're trying to force something as well, and you should also kind of let the right teachings and teachers and mentors come across your path rather than just googling like best ayahuasca shaman and then going to go see them um and i and i mean i also had like it's not to say that i didn't have amazing experiences on ayahuasca when i was in peru but my main intention interestingly was actually i understood like the interdimensional that there was an interdimensional world that affected our physical reality and my intention was I wanted to see more of that. And I really wanted to understand that. And I would go into each ceremony with a specific intention. Like I was reading books at the time about shamanism. I'd be like, okay, I want to see like the field that's around people and how it affects people. And when I went into that, that intention, often actually, to my surprise, the medicine plant would work with would work with me in my intention but then there were other times when it got very confusing and hijacked like I, we uh we had alien interferences in one ayahuasca ceremony for instance um where even the shaman was like talking to the aliens that were in the room um we had other people who were channeling alien languages in it there was flashes of light outside of the a place where we were having the ceremonies and i don't even remember that ceremony very much or what came nothing came up for me personally in that ceremony because I had literally left my body it was so intense and like people were just 
people were throwing up way more than usual. It was like the frequency was crazy and it wasn't an, like, it wasn't a great frequency at all. It was just very distorted. So that I could see that, you know, my positive experience, my, the negative experiences looking back, even though I didn't know that they were negative at the time, far outweighed the positive ones. And I call them negative because they got me very ungrounded and very confused about reality. And when I came back to the normal world, much like these kind of horror stories I was telling, I was talking about before, I didn't even know how to integrate them into reality. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to leave this alone for a while. Yeah. Um, that's that's a huge topic you just mentioned, which you made me aware of because I was completely done with the whole ayahuasca scene, so to speak, and even like yeah, the whole alien agenda and the UFO phenomena, which is all a topic on its own, right? And I made a documentary about the UFOs, aliens, and the question of contact, that the phenomena is not what most people think it is, especially the New Age still buys into the space brothers are here to save us, the you know, Galactic Federation of Light, not not understanding the hyperdimensional matrix and how most often negative forces appear as positive ones. And then when you told me that, you know, people down there now use ayahuasca ceremonies to literally have have conscious contact with alien beings, channel them. You know, even you told me it ties into the hybridization program that people think it's a good thing that, you know, these alien entities graze or whatever they may be, basically fuck with our genetics. You know, in, in, uh, engaging in this breeding program is good for humanity. And there's this whole deception. It's, it's extremely disturbing. And then I realized in this day and age, it has more height. And then because of the hype and the popularity of ayahuasca medicine plants, the matrix control systems and overdrive and uses it as a portal for more control, for more attachment and interferences, but can manipulate in a lot of these visions. That's what I realized too. As I mentioned before, like I feel sometimes in my past, I've overestimated myself and projected more made more of these experiences and vision than they actually were because I wanted them to be amazing and, 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 and profound. And then ego came into play who hijacks these experiences when, you know, you feed off of that, it kind of, that you're special or yeah. anything like that. And then everyone you know? comes back and they want to share their amazing ayahuasca experience. that shows how enlightened they are. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and then these, you know, many people have visions of different, uh, you know, archangels or gods, but they, they can be very manipulative and ties into, so-called trap of agreement where you get make an agreement with these hostile beings uh, but most often as it's written in the esoteric teachings most often angel or satan appears as an angel of light and that reminds me of when i just quote this real quick from my article a quote by lisa renee i can uh, recommend her work energysynthesis.com is a website and she nails it here um, she says ayahuasca other ceremonial Shamanic plants and psychedelic drugs are high-risk behaviors that initiate attachments, addiction webbing, and possession for human beings on the planet during the ascension cycle at this time. Ayahuasca plant spirit has been hijacked by many of the dark avatars and the consortium of the NAA, the negative alien agenda, entities, basically called hostile forces of the hyperdimensional matrix, that are on this planet during the ascension cycle looking to harvest soul bodies and the possibility to take over the physical body. It is designed to interfere with true spiritual communication links and shut off the neurological communication functions between the person's consciousness and the higher spirit. It will install its own software programs to run the body and brain in the autonomic functions of the central nervous system. It is usually an astral enlightenment program to trick the person into believing their artificially induced spiritual and altered consciousness state is real. The ayahuasca plant is connected to a massive spirit that has grown in size from many people being falsely led on this path and taking it at high quantities during this time. 
the design of this plant ceremony in most common cases is that the spirit of the plant is manipulated by negative forces that want the original consciousness of the person taking the drug to leave the body and or change timelines. The goal for the imposter spirit that want to take over the human body either in the current time or in the future timelines uses the ayahuasca plant to act as a conduit and dark portal opening to allow access into the inner spiritual sanctum of that person. Now, the really important part of that quote is this, what she mentions, this enlightenment, installing this astral enlightenment program to trick the person into believing the artificial induced spiritual and altered consciousness state is real. So that's, I, you know, people feel they have been walking, have these enlightening experiences, but they came, uh, she said, these four, four enlightenment experiences, which actually the esoteric teachings, the occult teachings also uh, warn about the mystical phenomena that are sidetracked but are not considered the true awakening experience. Yeah, exactly. And even that idea, like when we're on this awakening path, there's going to be several junctures where we try, where we're going to try, where these forces are going to try and derail us from our true soul purpose. And, um, and I think looking back on my own experiences, it was a derailment. Like if I would have just kept up my practice, doing yoga, meditation, working on my stuff that came up, it would have helped. I, I think I would have, I think, I, well, who knows what would have happened, but I think that would have been more productive for my own spiritual growth. Because I, I basically had more work to do because of stuff that happened in the ayahuasca ceremony after. So that was a kind of a bit of a red flag. And then I realized, like, it actually, you know, everything can be used as a lesson looking back. That's what truly committed me to my meditation practice. Because I was like, oh, my God, there are no shortcuts. I need to, you know, not just even meditate because you can also use meditate as a way of spiritually bypassing, but meditate and allow my mind to kind of calm down, see what comes up in my body and then work with that. And that there wasn't going to be just suddenly I take a drink of a plant medicine and all my traumas go away. I think that's the issue is that thinking that there is any sort of shortcut on this journey and and then and then through our own laziness, that's when we can easily get um derailed by by stuff like ayahuasca because people just don't want to do like the really hard work they just don't want to sit with their feelings they want to they just want to take a drink or take mushrooms and then suddenly they feel better but the the fact of the matter is is like all this trauma as you experienced in your mushroom ceremonies is in your body and you're going to have to heal that through your own presence and creating an out-of-body experience is actually is going to leave you less present than before for the most part i don't know i know a lot of people who do ayahuasca regularly and the people and i don't know anyone who it's it's truly it's it's, it's made into an enlightened being and if ayahuasca is such a powerful medicine then how come we don't have more people who are enlightened from ayahuasca <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's on a good you know two things that come to mind when you share this also relates to what you said at the beginning like again we're not telling people what they should or should be doing personally in my own process what i've realized um doing any forms of psychedelics medicine plants actually is um, detrimental to my own embodiment practice it's actually mm. counterproductive it's very you know? draining on the physical very, body too yeah and energetic and i noticed that because yeah, as may some people know follow my work i uh, host retreats in in peru in the high jungle which also uh, lauren and i are going to host another retreat that's coming june uh, but we're going to work we're working without medicine plants in the past i used to work with medicine plants in particular wachuma san pedro cactus with my uh, peruvian uh, friend he's a wachuma curandero but also the program we designed was back then we had like a 10-day program or nine-day program 
And we had like whole preparation phase and embodiment practices, psychological work. And then literally out of 10 days, just one day, a ceremony. And then the rest three or four days, integration, right? But even within that, we realized then years into it, like we wanted to stop working with it because we realized people were so just focused on the medicine plant. Mm. That's what they wanted so badly. And it's and people had amazing experiences. Don't get me wrong. Healing experiences was beautiful. But we noticed a similar what you said at the beginning. Most people still lack the foundation on a very basic level. You know, yeah. if you want to like, if you feel drawn to the path of medicine plants, I can highly recommend to have already and somewhat... Uh, you know, consistent meditation practice, embodiment practice, spiritual practice, uh, also have done a certain amount of psychological work, even, you know, basic understanding of young in psychology, childhood wounding, how to process that, right? And all of that and before you can, you know, enter that kind of domain. And also on top of it, it's especially, you know, when you're entering other dimensions of these plants, have an understanding of the hyperdimensional matrix, the occult forces, how deceptive they can, how to navigate these realms of understanding before you just uh, enter these jungles. Because even it's written in, in the esoteric teachings, there's jungles out there in, in the in the unseen realms that are far more dangerous than any physical jungles out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also, uh, the funny thing is, is, you know, no matter how much psychic awareness you also have, once you're in that state, you I think you have to be ext- like, I mean, you have to be a very powerful sorcerer to even navigate that. Because even with my own level of like, I mean, I didn't have a deep level, but I feel like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's similar to almost when you can develop your meditation practice as much as you want, as much as you want. But then when you're in the world and the situation that drives you crazy, or maybe with your family, for instance, like how great is your meditation practice is going to be? So even though, like, no matter how much awareness you gain about your, you gain before you go into these situations, you're kind of left like it's extremely hard to navigate once you're in it as well. I think that's also the thing. And also, I guess as an incentive for people, um, what I've noticed is that the more that someone has done that foundational work, the less they're going to have these extremely horrific trips. Like the people who seem to have the most horrific uh, experiences when I was in those ceremonies were the people who, like, I, I mean, just seemed like they were partying and doing cocaine which leads me into a very interesting story, by the way. I actually knew a girl uh, who I met in a meditation retreat who told me that she was like crazy partying, like doing tons of cocaine and alcohol before she went to the ayahuasca ceremony and she drank the ayahuasca and nothing happened. <laughs> that reminds me of, a, I had a few ceremonies, Had was also, there was a few individuals, there's one guy who had like two or three cups and it didn't affect him at all was weird and he had a weird energy and that reminds me of something you mentioned before because i was also in this my romantic phase like oh every we just need to you know put lsd into the water supply and everybody will awaken or if the world leaders would just eat mushrooms or bush or whatever obama take ayahuasca you know they would have this enlightening experiences and would be amazing but you know you can only experience on your level of being in your soul potential, mm-hmm. and that ties into the topic of soulless humans and organic portals. And not not everybody is soul, but many some people are just automated, empty shells, so to speak, and don't have a little. You know that's a question of the soul, and this topic goes. You know, people can check it out on my blog called "Organic Portals: Soulless Humans." So when an individual like this takes a medicine plant, then indeed nothing happens. Mm-hmm. You know, if a psychopath or sociopath out there, the world leaders, the world is run by psychopaths, most where people know that, 
if they drink ayahuasca or LSD, they won't have any enlightening experience. They won't. It would just not happen to them because they don't have that level of being in them already. It can only bring out what's already in within you. So this whole romantic notion that everybody just needs to drink ayahuasca in order to make this world a better place is based on illusion and the assumption, again, which we talked about uh, before, uh, the assumption that we feel that yeah, everybody is the same. Right, that everybody has, has the same emotion, the same capabilities within themselves. But as it's written in esoteric scriptures, equality there's not such a thing as equality in an entire universe, and there are different levels of being from again soulless to more soul individualized beings. So that's really important to understand from a more mature level and, and you know, having a more grounded understanding also of, of that kind of cosmology, I would I would say. Yeah, and I guess uh, the the my main lesson was that doing meditation and self work in a, in in nature was far more effective to me than any of these ceremonies, and that's also why it's amazing too because we kind of both reached these similar conclusions, and now we get to kind of use the practices that we've developed on our own and combine it into this retreat that we're going to be doing in Peru and just give people these basic foundational skills and have them meditating in nature and going through these processes and this psychological self-work and understanding more of these realities as well. So it kind of creates a more grounded, I feel, I feel just speaking for myself, this will have a much more grounded impact on what will change because I mean, it takes a few days from doing an ayahuasca or a psychedelic ceremony just to come back down to earth and come back down in your body. That was a challenge for me. And if you're doing these practices and you're already in your body, then you're actually doing the work that needs to be done by transmuting these traumas and these and these things that we're holding on to. Like it's all stored in the body. So it's interesting how these out-of-body experiences, they can't if you're not in your body, then you're you're just going to come back into the same body with the same pa- patterns and the same history, and you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Again, yeah, on that retreat, just uh, before we close up the hour here, this retreat will be in the Peruvian High Jungle June 3rd until June 9th. You can read up it on my website on the retreats and events. And it's also restricted only to nine people. And, you know, I've lost count. I mean, literally anybody whom I tell that I host retreats in Peru says, oh, you're doing ayahuasca. I'm like, no, we're not. We love the energy of the jungle. It's amazing. Just being in this powerful natural environment brings stuff already up already, but we're really focusing on, on embodiment practices, on meditation, but also give talks and workshops uh, about various topics. Uh, many of them we covered here called forces, basic psychological work, also focus on right relationship and all of that on, you know, aligning with the soul purpose and all of that. And that's, you know, the intention, what we realized to our own suffering and learning most often lessons the hard way, and many of them were just initiations, is also to give people a more a foundation and the tools they can apply on, on the everyday uh, level when they come back. Yeah, exactly. Like I've gone deep into meditation. I have some extremely powerful meditations that can be applied. And these meditations also bring stuff up, but they'll bring stuff up in a way that's manageable as well. And also having people who've been through these experiences and can help guide you and support you emotionally is priceless. And I think that's the main thing that people are looking for. Like they're looking to really find out like what they have 
to that needs to be healed, have a greater understanding of the world, and then being able to bring that into the world in a grounded and practical way. So I'm just a disclaimer, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out. But since we do have only nine spaces, it also might be already filled up by then. But you're welcome to still go to the website and check out more details about that. So I'm really excited for it as well, because I've personally never been to the deep jungle. And I know how powerful it is to do these kind of practices in nature and itself. So yeah, anything else we need to add? Yeah, just generally keep in mind with the hype nowadays, a path is just a path, so to speak, there are many different paths and the medicine path is just another path. It's not necessary to take any form of medicine plants or psychedelics to heal yourself. And sometimes it can help. Sometimes it can also make things worse. You never know. It's just really trusting more your inner guidance in that sense. Um, but yeah, this um, closes, finished the first hour and uh, we'll be talking in the second hour for the members. You can find the membership section on my website, veilofreality.com, to access the second hour of the podcast. And we go talk more about our personal experiences. There's definitely some very interesting DMT experiences I want to share with you guys that ties into the alien agenda. And we also talk about uh, MKUltra and um, the creation of the psychedelic and hippie movement and how that got already hijacked in the 60s and 70s. Timothy Leary and all of that and you know and we go a bit deeper into some of the topics we have discussed in the first hour as well so talk to you then <laughs>